Alright, let's turn to this passage that was read in your hearing, book of Esther, chapter 2. Later, when the anger of King Xerxes had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he decreed about her. And so on to the uh, 18th verse. It's a poignant statement, isn't it, at the beginning of uh, this uh, second chapter. That after his drunken anger had subsided, he, he remembered his wife, Vashti. Divorce in haste, repent at leisure. She'd been lovely to look at, we are told, in verse 11 of the previous chapter, but she was no longer his wife. He banned her from the marriage bed and from sharing his throne. He kicked her out of the palace in Susa. But now he remembered her and remembered what he'd done. Now, from our knowledge of ancient history, what uh, scholars tell us, that there's a gap between chapters 1 and 2, in which was uh, the period of the greatest military expedition and until then the world had ever seen. Xerxes took off, burying his guilt and grief in an unsuccessful invasion of Greece. It was the year 480 BC. And all the provinces in his empire, from India all the way to Kush near Ethiopia, had to supply troops and cavalry and ships and provisions. He um, issued a decree to the Greeks uh, to submit to him. They all refused. And so he led an expeditionary force of about 180,000 men and invaded Greece. There was initial success for his armies, but ultimately the Greeks won. He was defeated. Um, He built a floating bridge uh, across the the Dardanelles, um, the Hellespont. And a great storm came and destroyed it. And uh, then uh, he, in his frustration, issued the famous bizarre commandment that the Dardanelles should be lashed with 300 lashes. And he also then cut off the heads of the bridge-building engineers. So, four years after the drunken banquet described in the first chapter, the demoralized Xerxes returns to Susa, licking his wounds and thinking about the future. There was no beautiful Vashti running up to him to greet him. Did his irritations and frustrations increase as the days went by? Did he prowl around the palace like an old lion? Was anyone safe that he bumped into in the corridors of power? Even his most trustworthy counsellors were numbers thrown into prison or tortured or executed at any little thing that offended him. After years of peace and quiet, when their boss was away um, fighting a war in Greece... His courtiers had this rude awakening when he returned. They tiptoed around. They tried not to catch his eye. What had started as a domestic dispute between a husband and a wife, the sort of thing every family experiences, became an international crisis that swallowed up the time and the emotional energy of the leaders of the most powerful nation in the world. What a farce! Their gods, the philosophy of Babylon, were so impoverished that a family dispute brought the running of the empire to a halt. So they wrung their heads in frustra- hands in frustration. They, they could see his loneliness and his guilt, but what could be done? Finally, at some judicious moment, when the king seemed 
relaxed one evening. One of them took his life in his hands. And he said to them, uh, you, he said to the king, your, your majesty, we've been thinking, verse 2, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners to every province of the realm. There were 127 of these to bring all these beautiful girls into the harem of the citadel of Susa. And fortunately for the life of that servant, the suggestion, the idea, appealed to the king. And so the search was on for another Vashti. The first thing I want to talk to you about is that Persia was a place obsessed with sex and beauty. Just like the world in which we live, then the cure for so much human unhappiness is considered to be relationships with members of the opposite sex. You see the emphasis on beauty in this chapter. Beautiful young girls, that refrain in verses 2 and 3, are brought to the royal harem. Now the harem would be a, a large building behind high walls, guarded day and night. There the lesser wives and the concubines of the king lived under the authority of the king's eunuch, Haggai. It was the saddest place in the Persian Empire. It was virtually a women's prison with its own tight structures of authority. Once a woman entered that bitter place and had slept with Xerxes, she'd never leave it. She wouldn't see her family, her friends, her parents visit her hometown again because she'd slept with a god. Many of those discarded girls would become forgotten, dying, uh, an anonymous death. They wouldn't even meet the king again. That fate lay before most of them, and they knew it. So the pressures on them to impress Xerxes by becoming as alluring as possible were immense. Beauty treatments were given to the new girls to transform them. You see references to that in verse uh, 3 and verse 9 and verse 12. The treatment lasted a whole year. Six months of oil of myrrh. Six months of perfumes and cosmetics. And all the women then were subject to this prolonged makeover. An entire year living within the restricted confines of the harem. And that also ensured that uh, none of them was already pregnant when they arrived there. So that any child that later was born must have been fathered by Xerxes. Even Esther herself, though she's described in verse 7 as lovely in form and features, notice again this emphasis on physical appearance, was required to go through this cosmetic engineering for 12 months. She didn't need it. Most people don't. So hundreds of women were all brought to Susa and were placed in the royal harem under Haggai's eagle eye. And then one by one they were taken to the king's bedroom. They could take anything with them that would enhance their chances. And as it is said, he slept with them. They had one chance to impress the king. One night at the most to win the prize of being chosen as his wife. Climbing the ladder in the pecking order of the harem. Getting their own rooms and uh, their own servants. None of them could return to the king's bedroom unless she'd pleased him. And then he would remember her name. Who was that? 
and then he would summon her by her name, we are told. Verse 14. The king was looking for then the elusive, perfect, sensual experience as Norman Mailer, representing the whole 20th century beat generation, coarsely described it, the search for an orgasm more apocalyptic than the one which preceded it. That's what it was. Love between a husband and a woman was reduced to something as base as that. The girls of Babylon were treated as sex objects, perfumed, rehearsed in the tastes of the king, and then generally discarded for a bitter future, forbidden marriage, forbidden motherhood. Esther chapter 2 is a totally degrading picture. But it's not an unfamiliar picture for us today. The Western world has largely made a hero of Hugh Hefner and his playmates and what pain that hero worship has brought if we cannot afford to bring a procession of young women into our homes for the night. We can entertain their images via the World Wide Web, via the Playboy Channel, so the poorest person can invite them into his home to pander to his sick fantasies day after day. Millions of men do just that all the world over. We've all become Xerxes. Esther chapter 2 is a description of the degradation of the gift of sex, isn't it? And though women come off worse, men are destroyed by this evil mindset. What's happening in the Persian Empire is the separation of the union of man and woman from love, from childbearing, because in marriage alone, union finds sanctity and safety and meaning. So the physical act then, divorced from that, disappoints and frustrates. It's lusted after ceaselessly, and yet it's never what it's cracked up to be. It can't be, because it's been trivialized. So back in Susa, another woman, and yet another woman, and yet another woman, night after night, was sent to the royal bedchamber. They were all desperately trying to please satiated Xerxes. But they were battling with a reality that the moral and spiritual significance of the act had been destroyed by the very structure in which it was set. Mutual, warm understanding and affection between two people was missing. Knowledge of the other person was absent. And without that, there can't be tender intimacy. There's that very good reason then why the word of God is both very positive about marriage and very negative about other kinds of sexual activity. Very positive is the whole book, the Song of Songs, is the divine celebration of the paradisaic ideal of the married romantic love. You understand that the sexual act leads to children being conceived and then needing to be looked after for 18 years. If the sexual act was not pleasurable, then would, would people be drawn to it? Knowing that after pain, and after pain, that would, there would be the penalty of 18 years of parenting. 
And so God then, so that the human race can replenish and subdue the earth, then God makes uh, desire strong and delightful. But he has hedged it about with cautions. It is designed for marriage between one person and another. Well, time is going by. Let me just jump over these verses from the Bible that just establish that. You can see it in the outline. You can see that the Bible would scorn Xerxes. Scorn it. Would be shocked at it. What Xerxes was doing. Would find it degrading. Why is it degradation? Because Lust, in contrast to love, is always exploitive. It's always selfish. It desecrates sex because it wrenches it away from the physical act, from the content of life, long love and trust. The king's lust was simply violating the personality, each of the girls whom he took into his bed. It treated each one of them as an end. Not as an end, but as a means. A means of gratifying the uh, fleeting and fading appetites of the old man. We're living in a society where the experience of love is often identified with copulation. What is tender and holy and loving and sublime is degraded to the level of an animal. You know, an animal, you put a dish of food in front of it, it wolfs it down. Give it some bowl of water, it drinks it. Bring a mate, it copulates. T.S. Eliot, in his poem, Sweeney Agonistes, has a vivid phrase describing how the mystery of married love has been demolished. He says, birth and copulation and death, that's all the facts when you come to brass tacts. Birth and copulation and death, that's all it is. That's how the man looks at it. He says, mere sex, that's all. Nothing much, nothing to get excited about. You know how in the opening chapters of Genesis, all the animals as well as man are created on the same day. They're all created on the sixth day. From the dust of the earth, they're all created from the dust of the earth. And so there are many things, there are many similarities between us and the humbler creation. God doesn't spread diversity unnecessarily and so you can take a heart valve or the heart valves or the heart of a pig or a sheep and you can transplant it into a, a human being's heart. We are that alike physically. Genetically we're almost identical. We share the same sensory system, the same nervous system to the animals. But man is unique. You're not just animals gathering here today. You were made in the image of God, in the likeness of God. And that makes a tremendous difference. If we saw a, a, a pig wallowing in, in the deep mud, we wouldn't be shocked. If we saw a dog smelling the backside of another dog, we'd glance away. But that's what dogs do. If we saw people, men and women, behaving like that, we would be horrified because they are made in the image of God. Man has a, an aesthetic sense. He has a sense of beauty, of propriety. He has a sense of modesty. He has a sense of self-control. 
A man can lay down his life for his friends. Parents deny themselves for the sake of their children. You've heard people claim that sex is just as uncontrollable as a cold. That's what they say. They justify any sort of aberration. Well, you know, that's me. They say that man is helpless in the face of it. What utter folly. The human spirit, even in people who are not Christians, the human spirit is able to control natural desires. human spirit can control wild animals. It can practice patience. The human spirit can. There are grand people who live all around us. They never come to church. But they find families. They're loyal to one another. They don't fool around. If the prevailing philosophy or religion of a civilization is saying that modesty and self-control and purity are not virtues at all, but vices that need to be mocked and destroyed, and if that sensual religion evangelizes and effectively educates a whole civilization to go ahead and do what they want to do except use contraceptives, then we are in a terrible state. If it teaches that you have the right to fulfill your urges at any time, and that not to do so will lead to neuroses and complexes that could damage the development of your personality, we are facing an increasingly fearful future. If it teaches that the union of a man and a woman is simply an act of pleasure like sharing a bar of chocolate, we are living in one of the darkest times of human history. If this religion teaches that it is valuable for men and women to go to bed together because only in this way they can know one another, our civilization is in a damnable state indeed. We are living at the animal level. And that contradicts the destiny which God intends for us. We are worse than the animal. If you're invited to a wedding and you're standing around in the reception afterwards and you see a man, he's having another pint and another pint. You seek to dissuade him. You say, now, be a man. You've had enough. Come, come and sit with me. Come, let's talk together. That's what you say to him. You appeal to the fact that he's a man. But he's not an animal. He bears the divine image. But if you saw a crocodile swimming up to a teenager in a river, you wouldn't say to the crocodile, oh, come on, be a crocodile. Because a crocodile is acting according to its instincts in killing and eating. It is obeying the voice of its own coniferous nature. But men and women are not dominated by the voice of their own desires and hungers. We are made by God. We are made like God. We are made for God. We are made for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness will characterize all our eternal relationships. I guess it's possible to gather uh, a large audience of men to watch a stripper undressing on a stage. And even a group of women today on a hen night will gather to watch a group of men acting in the same way. Now what is this? What is this? Imagine a civilization in which you could fill a hall by secretly placing a plate of food under a silver cover and then you put a cardboard box on top of it then you put a white sheet on top of that then you put a tapestry over that hall. 
finally then, when the hall was filled and the music played, you took away the tapestry and then you took away the sheet and you took away the cardboard box and finally then you lifted up the silver warming covering pan and there would be a succulent pork chop and a mountain of steaming rice and a pile of green peas with a lump of butter and a jug of uh, hot gravy. And everybody in the room went wild. And they all stood up and shouted and grunted and gasped and whooped and applauded. Wouldn't you conclude that that whole civilization had something desperately sick in its attitude to food? And I would wonder, wouldn't some visitor from outer space be perplexed in the way he sees women, sex being used to sell furniture? And food? And cars? A photo of a bimbo being used to attract people to the product being sold? Wouldn't they be shocked at women becoming commercialized objects at that level? Women becoming like the chimpanzees that sell PG tips. Are women at that level advertising so cynical and calculated and exploitative? It's everywhere today. It's in radio programs like The Archers, let alone TV and CD, filled with references to sexual aberrations. Wouldn't these extraterrestrials, as they got out of their flying saucers and moved invisibly amongst us, shake their little green heads with amazement at such perplexing perversions? I am saying, we Christians are the extraterrestrials these days. We're living in a civilization we're not home. This isn't our home. We don't belong here. We are strangers and pilgrims. This isn't the world that we belong to. We see a city and a world and a glory that lies before us. And that's the world we are going for. We shake our heads at what 13-year-old girls talk about and giggle about together. And we ourselves are not unaffected by the way the sexual instinct is inflamed to make money, to sell newspapers, especially on Sundays, and by the access to porn sites that there are. What foolish women to allow themselves to be degraded in this way. You say, ah, oh, well, some of them are slaves and are, are trapped into it, and that's grievous. But many choose it. What a price women must pay when modesty and purity and faithfulness are mocked. Would you live in Persia? Would you live here in chapters 1 and 2 here? Are you unpersuaded by my arguments? Are you protesting? Yes, but uh, sex is in a mess because it, it hasn't been taught in schools. It's been hushed up. Not so! It's been talked about and talked about and written about and taught in schools. And there are teenage magazines that just drool with it. You say, yes, but sex is nothing to be ashamed of. There's nothing to be ashamed of in enjoying your food. But if a whole civilization found food the main interest in life, 
and spent their evenings smacking their lips and dribbling over pictures of food, then that would be a perverse civilization. You say, yes, but uh, sex is natural and normal. But if you give in to every one of your inflated desires, then that will lead to disease, it will lead to jealousy, it will lead to lies, it will lead to divorce, it will lead to unwanted pregnancies and abortions and concealment from those who love you the most. It will lead to everything that's the very reverse of, uh, of good humor and happiness and fun and being frank and honest with those you depend on. You say, well, yes, but the Bible's ideal, the Bible's teaching on sexual purity is impossible. Then how have millions of Christians succeeded in being pure before marriage and faithful within it? We are not asking them to climb Everest. We're not asking them to run a four-minute mile or get a first-class honours degree or obtain a Victoria Cross or to get a gold medal in the Olympics. But humble men and women without number have kept their marriage vows as part of presenting their, their bodies to God day by day. Xerxes' advisor set him up for this ugly enterprise to make him feel better about losing his wife Vashti. They believed, ah, this will be it. Sex with many young women. The surest way to make him a happy bunny. They were fools. They were cheats. They were liars. They were the smartest people in Persia. But that's their whole philosophy. They didn't have a redeeming personal God of love. They didn't have the Bible to help them. Many think like them in the Western world today. You know, happiness, you never get it by direct pursuit. As every wise person knows, you, you can't pick it up. In uh, pick and mix happiness section of Woolworths, you can't pick up happiness like that. You can't give an order and uh, find it on eBay or it'll come by the postman. I brought you a box of happiness. Happiness is a byproduct. If you say, I'm going for happiness, then you are chasing the pot at the end of the rainbow. Happiness for Xerxes will be found in finding Vashti, knocking on her door with a bunch of flowers, and getting down on his knees and apologizing to her for the abysmal way in which he treated her and divorced her, and begging her to forgive him. That would be the way. And remarrying her or living a celibate life from that day onwards. There would be no possibility of happiness for Xerxes until that was done. And there are things in your lives. And chasing after sex and going to those websites and reading those magazines are not going to attain happiness for you until other things are done and dealt with. Let me go on for another five minutes here and show you how Christians living in Persia were influenced by its values. We meet a man here called Mordecai. And he's one of the saddest figures in this book. 
We can build up a picture of him. We can say, for example, well, his name was Mordecai, and that was a Babylonian name. But by our 21st century, of course, the Bible's use of the name, it's become not a pagan name at all. When I was a little boy, I went to church with my uh, uh, father in Bethania Daulis, and uh, there was uh, the church secretary, and his name was Mr. Mordecai Evans, and he would make the intimations, the announcements, Every Sunday in the morning and evening he would come out and the man would say, and now Mr. Mordecai Evans will give us the announcements. I remember that name and I stood in awe of this righteous Welshman who so graciously told the people what was going to happen during the coming week. Mordecai. Long before I knew that this was a character in the book of Esther. He was there in the citadel of Susa. Now, I think from verse 6 we learn that his great-grandfather, Kish, was the first of his family to be taken into exile in the year 597 with King Jehoiachim. That was a hundred years before Xerxes succeeded to the throne. So, they had been immersed in this non-Jehovahist world for over a century. Fifty years almost, fifty years earlier, Cyrus the Great had uh, become uh, the king. He was the grandfather of uh, Xerxes. And um, he had passed the decree that allowed the Jews to return home. But here's Mordecai. And he's still here. He could have gone back any time through his life and returned to Jerusalem. But he is still here. And you will also see that he's very much a part of the society. We gather that he'd been appointed a Persian magistrate because we're told in verse 19 that he was sitting at the king's gate. And that expression occurs five times in the book of Esther. The gate is the place where justice is dispensed. It's not necessarily near um, a gate itself, like Northgate Street or Southgate. There's not a gate. There was. There was a gate. The gate was the place in the early days where people from the country and people from the town gathered for... Um, justice and courts of law. And so, here it was. It was a, a fairly substantial gate. This gate, where he met, was very near the king's palace. And then we're told that he had adopted, fostered, um, his cousin, Hadashah. And uh, she'd been orphaned and he'd taken her in. He'd raised her, we're told, like his own child. Hadashah is the Hebrew name, but the Persian name Esther is used. It comes from the Persian word star. Ishtar was the Babylonian goddess of love. So when this search for the beautiful women of the empire began, and there was a sweep, she was picked up and taken to the harem. And I think without any protest on Mordecai's part, he made no attempt to prevent her from becoming one of the candidates for the new queen. Quite the reverse. In fact, the advice he gave her was not to jeopardize her position by letting on the fact that she was a Jew. She was an Old Testament Christian. I suppose if she had told them, but you see, I'm, I'm a Jew. I'm a believer in Jehovah. Then she would have been immediately disqualified from becoming the queen. She could have walked out. She could have gone home. 
But Mordecai forbade her to reveal her nationality and her family background. Verse 10. So by her dress and her language, she was indistinguishable from the other women who entered the harem and submitted themselves to the Babylonian makeover. She was a symbol of everything that was wrong with the Old Testament people of God that stayed in Babylon. They blended in with their neighbors, so much so that it was impossible to distinguish them from unbelievers in their enthusiasms, let alone in, in their morals. Or in the sabbatical structure of their week, there was no day of rest in the harem at all. And she immediately became a favorite of the eunuch, and not only Haggai's favorite, but we are told later on, everybody, everybody liked her in the harem. If they had voted one by one who to throw out of the harem, she would have been the last one. She'd have got the price and the contracts. So she settled down, and we are told, she settled down to become the very best member of the harem. She followed Haggai's instructions. But what were the best ways to please Xerxes? To the very letter. We're not told why, how. Whether it was dressing lavishly or dressing in a very simple garb. But finally she became the new queen. Xerxes was pleased with her. He set a crown on her head. There was a banquet, her banquet in her honour. And everybody had a day off work. And because he'd married this wonderful new life and they had another chance to eat and drink. Any excuse from that? And marrying this ogre, Xerxes, was the very thing that Mordecai wanted for the, the daughter that he loved. Incredible. I mean, she couldn't have been the only Old Testament Christian that was beautiful and had been taken to the hair. But we don't read of days of prayer and fasting that our girls should be watched over and preserved and kept in some wonderful way. Here is Mordecai. He's a believer that has spent too long living in the kingdom of another God. And so he started to think and act like the worshippers of the other gods in Babylon. Of course he was concerned for Esther and he loved Esther, we're told he walked every day as near and listened, talked to the guards there, found all the gossip, discovered as much as he could of how Esther was. But his concern was much larger than his concern for Esther. He wanted protection for himself and for all the Old Testament believers. As they grew in wealth and smartness and power and influence and their Persian neighbours got more and more hostile and resentful of their presence in their midst. What could be better, he thought, than one of them marrying King Xerxes? You remember how that whole mentality destroyed King Solomon? How he was given the throne by his father David? And how then he started this series of dynastic marriages. How he married the daughters of the princes of the Amalekites and the Midianites and the Egyptians and the Assyrians and the Babylonians all around. That he had a thousand, a thousand of them. And that they compromised Solomon so much that they brought into Jerusalem their gods and their moral values. Solomon and Mordecai, they weren't trusting in the Lord, were they? 
There was no faith that uh, if only we look to the Lord and, and do what pleases him and honour him in everything we'll do. He'll watch over us. He'll protect us. He'll keep us. If we cry to him, he'll help us. He, he'll surround us by walls of salvation. He'll send his hosts from heaven, his invisible chariots and horsemen. And, and they'll be with us. And they'll keep us. They had no faith like that thing. So here's Mordecai encouraging his own foster daughter to get this evil man as her husband. Seems to me incredible. I mean, you'd have hidden her away. Like Anna Frank, wouldn't you? You'd have kept her away from that man. There were expressed prohibitions about Jehovahists marrying the worshippers of Dagon and Baal and Molech. But what was the law of God? to a Mordecai who was compromised because he started to think and act and desire and laugh at all the things that the people he lived amongst laughed and desired and mocked. At best for him, the words of the traditions that he had received were valuable, but they weren't living. They weren't his life. He wasn't like the psalmist of Psalm 1, but his delight was in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditated day and night. That was God. He had a form of godliness, but he didn't know the power of it to keep him and keep this girl entrusted to his care and the people of God in the danger they were in. He is a Lord who is a shepherd and a shield for those who look to him. If we trust in him, he'll protect us. When we are surrounded by our enemies, do you know, he'll prepare a table for us in the presence of our enemies and our cups will run over and his goodness and mercy will follow us all our days. We have a much more wonderful king than Xerxes and all of you have got to choose. Who is going to be your king? Who are you going to idolize and love and serve? Is it going to be King Jesus, the king of love, is he going to be your shepherd? Or is he going to be Xerxes? And the problem with Wales today is that millions of people are loving and serving King Xerxes. And they say, lucky dog, lucky dog. Wish I could be like him. That's what they say. But here's this wonderful king. And he can be your king. You've got to bow before him now. You've got to stop doing what you're doing. You've got to from now on do his good and acceptable and perfect will. You've got to receive him into your heart and life. You've got to follow him. Believe on the Lord. And his name is Jesus Christ. Not salvation. Almighty God, bless thy word to us, we pray, and help us now to profit from it. Oh, may it rest in our hearts. May we be saved from sexual sins. May we be saved from making idols of all the people that are idolized in the media all around us. Oh, Lord, help us to be able to distinguish from the things that are fine about them because they're made in thine image and the things that are corrupt about them because that image has been marred by their defiance of thee. Help us, oh, Lord, never to doubt that however bad we've been, if we come 
In the name of Jesus Christ, and ask thy mercy and thy forgiveness. We're washed and cleansed and made whiter than snow. Help us to trust thee for these things, O Lord, and forget the things that are past, and then to go on in a holy life and a loving life. Bless every marriage and intended marriage here. Join them together. Be the one with an arm around both their shoulders. And join them in rich and increasing love for one another. Bless us with children and children's children, we pray. Oh, gracious God, grant that to us. Hear our prayers because we ask them in Jesus' name. Amen.